Hello. What the heck is up? Um, I just recorded an entire five minute long intro and realized that I hadn't, um, turned the microphone on. And yes, you heard that correctly. We now have a microphone. Um, so, yeah, I I have a microphone. And I have a microphone because my amazing, super awesome, spectacular friend Bailey, she, okay, she ordered a cherry patch for me because um she owns this business called cherry creek boutique and it she has an instagram that i'll try to remember to put in the description of this episode but um she ordered a cherry patch from me and i only charged her ten dollars for it because mainly just to cover shipping and stuff you know um but when she venmoed me she sent me 35 dollars which was way more than she needed to but she did it so that I could buy this microphone and it's very kind of her so everybody say thank you Bailey um she did not have to do that but so we have a microphone and it's it's great um I don't know if you can tell a difference like quality wise but I mainly wanted the microphone for the pop filter because I tend to use way too much breath um in my sentences (laughs) or in my words um So that's, yeah, that's what that is for. Um, also, I finally bought a chair, a desk chair. So I'm not sitting on the bar stool that's way too tall for the desk anymore. And it's going to, um, save my back. But right now I'm sitting in a Fort Hay State University lawn chair. Because it's shorter. So if you hear this, that's what that is. Um, today I'm going to be working on the cow print project, um, and I'm calling it project right now because I don't know exactly what it's going to be, (laughs) but we have like the base layer for it. Um, and an update on the checkered cardigan. I'm kind of just like running through this because I can't remember what all I said in the, uh, clip before this that I forgot to turn the microphone on. So... If this is rushed, that's why. Um, But the cardigan, the uh, checkered cardigan, it's going to be done eventually. Um, I went to Hobby Lobby and bought yarn, white yarn for it because I needed more. And I bought the wrong white, which is now the white that I'm using for the cow print project. But it'll, it'll happen. And when it does, it'll be great. But right now, it's not the time. Um, also I hope that you can't hear the LaCroix in the background, because I'm drinking a LaCroix right now, and I can hear it very clearly, but I don't know if you can, and I hope you can't. Um, I think that's all. I think I've covered my bases. Oh, no I have not. Okay, so today, the case that I'm doing is also because of Bailey. Um, Bailey, you're just getting all of the attention today, and it's okay, you deserve it, and I know that you love it. Um... Also, she has a store in Garnett, Kansas, um, so if you're ever in, in Garnett, I, I don't think that you will be, but if you are, go to her store. Um, it's very cute. It's amazing. She makes handmade jewelry, and she sells clothes, and it's great. Also, she has two really cute dogs. Um, they're corgis, so obviously they're cute. But Bailey had asked me what my favorite case was, and I could not answer because I do not have one particular case that I love the most um and that sounds morbid but you guys know what I mean um 
but I do have a few that I could talk about until I was blue in the face, which is what I'm going to do today. Yes, which is what I'm going to do today. Um, we're going to cover John List. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. So, John List is one of my absolutely favorite cases just because he's insane. Uh, yeah. Um, so we're just gonna get right into it. Um, which means I'm gonna pause this and chug some water because I already have a dry mouth and then we'll get into it. Okay. Thank you, Bailey. Thank you, Bailey. Thank you, Bailey. That's me giving you kisses. Okay. One second. I swear I live in a fairly, like, quiet neighborhood slash quiet apartment complex until I hit, well, not quiet apartment complex. My upstairs neighbors are a little noisy. Um, and they're good people, but they, they're just noisy, and that's that. Um, all upstairs neighbors are noisy, but, um, there's never sounds in my entire complex or in my neighborhood until I hit record, and then everybody's like, we are going to rev our engines and also call 10 ambulances at once. Um, so, I apologize, but maybe with the new microphone that won't be detected, um, I'm usually good about deleting the clips where you can hear it, so, we'll see. I have to burp. I'm not gonna do that. Yes, I did. Okay. Um, John List. Here we go. Um, grab your, grab your project, grab your cup of tea or coffee or water or soda or, um, adult beverage, but, I don't know. I'm not... I'm not in charge. Do what you want. Um, okay. Grab your things. You know the drill. Let's go. John List. John List was born on September 17th, 1925, making him a Virgo. Um, to my Virgo friends, you guys make great killers. Um, John was born in Bay City, Michigan to German-American parents. My mom's German. Oh, God. Um, his father's name was John Frederick List, and his mother's name was Alma Barbara Florence List. What a classy woman. Um, his parents raised him in a strict Lutheran home, and he eventually grew up to teach Sunday school at his church. In 1943, John, and I spelt John, J-O-H, Joe, Jaw. oh god, John enlisted in the United States Army and served as a lab tech during World War II. After he was discharged from the Army three years later in 1946, he enrolled at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. There, he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accounting. I don't know if school was easy back then, but I feel like that's very fast. Um, well, yeah. I mean, he only was there for like four years. That's a lot in four years. Um, yeah. That, that is fast. During his time there, um, he was also commissioned a second lieutenant through ROTC, and I don't know what that means, but it sounds important. So, do you guys hear that? I almost called it an elevator. Do you guys hear that helicopter? Why did I think elevator? Oh god, I'm losing my mind. Um, in November of 1950, the Korean War was escalating, and John was called to return to service, and 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 at fort eustis in virginia he met helen morris taylor the widow of a soldier soldier killed in action during the korean war um helen had a daughter with this man and her name was brenda um so it was not john's biological daughter um on december 1st 1951 in baltimore maryland helen 
and John got married and they moved to Northern California. We need to scroll. Okay, so they moved to Northern California. Um, this was also when John was moved to the finance corps for his outstanding accounting skills. And as we go on, you'll see that all of his jobs have to do with accounting. So he really, I mean, he really was good at accounting. I'll give him that. Um, after completing his second tour in 1952, John worked for a firm in Detroit and then at a paper company in Kalamazoo. Um, I love saying that word, Kalamazoo. Yes, it's a real place, if you didn't know. Um, in their time at Kalamazoo, John and Helen had three children. So, in seven years. Um, by 1959, John had been promoted to general supervisor of his company, but his wife Helen began to struggle greatly with, al- greatly with alcoholism and was becoming increasingly unstable. Um... Yeah, if my husband was an accountant, I probably would too. In 1960, Brenda married and moved out of the household. So the daughter that Helen had with the soldier that passed away, um, she moved out of the household. And John accepted a job with a company called Xerox. X-E-R-O-X. Xerox. That sounds like something. Sounds like Clorox, obviously, but like something else. Xerox. I don't know. In Rochester, New York. So... They had to move. Um, eventually, he became the director of accounting services, and in 1965, he began or he accepted a position as vice president and comptroller at a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. And I'm pretty positive that comptroller means that they're just like controller, um, but I'm probably wrong. So actually, pretend I didn't say that. Um, so once again, the family moved. And, you know, this this cannot be good for the kids or Helen with her mental state that was apparently, you know, decreasing. Um, Because moving for anybody is not that great of a thing. Moving this often is not that great of a thing for anybody, but especially kids. Um, You know, people think kids are really resilient and not to go all psycho, psycho, not to go all psychologist, but uh, kids are pretty, they're like sponges, you know, they soak up a lot of stuff. Um... So if you can, in the future, if you ever have a kid, or multiple, and you can help it, don't move around a lot. Um, It's not good for their little brains. But during this move, John's mother came with them because she was getting older, and John's dad had passed away. Um, She needed some help, you know. And the family of now six moved into Breeze Knoll, a 19-room Victorian mansion on 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield. You know you're rich when your house has a name. Um, yeah, the house was called Breeze Knoll. I wish. I I could never. I don't know. Um, everything seemed like it was going really great for the List family, but, you know, deep down, it was, it was about to go bad. Um, on the outside, they looked calm, cool, and collected, but on November 9th, 1971, everything changed. Um, one day, John woke up and decided that his family needed to be murdered, I guess. I, I don't know. Um, using his own 99, no, using his own 9mm, Steyer, Steyer, S-T-E-Y-E-R, 1912 semi-automatic handgun in his father's Colt .22 caliber revolver. That one's for you, gun people, I don't know. Um, John approached his wife after the children left for school and shot her in the back of the head. I, I don't know why. 
Um, no, I do know why. You don't know why. Um, after this, he went upstairs to the portion of the house that his mother lived in and shot her in the forehead right above her left eye. And when his 16-year-old daughter, Patricia, and his 13-year-old son, Frederick, Frederick, were arriving home from school, he shot both of them in the back of the head, too. Um, which, there's something so, um, telling about the fact that he shot them all in the back of the head. I mean, he shot his mom in the front above her eye, but, like, he couldn't look his wife in the face. He definitely couldn't look his kids in the face. Um, so he shot him in the back of the head, which, yeah, that, I mean, that says a lot to me. Um, he's a coward. Obviously, he's killing people, but whatever. So, after shooting all but one of his family members, John decided that he was hungry and he made himself lunch. Um, because, yeah, after killing your family and you're, you're totally sane, um, you can eat lunch. And you're still sane. <sighs> but after this, after he ate his little sandwich, um, he drove to the bank to close both his and his mother's bank accounts. Um, and his 15-year-old son, John Jr., was playing a soccer game at Westfield High School. So John decided to watch, you know, his, his son's last game which is so morbid, but it's a thing. Um, when they returned home afterwards, John shot John Jr. repeatedly, which was assumed to be because John Jr. tried to fight back. Um, it's so sad. Like, imagine... No, we're not gonna imagine. Sorry, I was itching my neck, and with the new mic, you can probably hear that. Um, but yeah, just like, imagine your dad shooting you. Like, I don't know. After he had finished brutally murdering his family, he placed their bodies on sleeping bags and dragged them into the mansion's ballroom. Um, except he did leave his mother's body in her apartment upstairs because, according to him, she was too heavy to drag into the ballroom. Um, but after this, he sat down and wrote a five-page letter to his pastor, which would later be found on the desk in his study. Um, and in this letter, he basically claimed that he saw far too much evil in the world and he had killed his family to save their souls. So remember that for later. Um, after writing the letter, he cleaned the crime scenes as best as he could and went, it sounded like I said asbestos, as best as he could. And he went around the house and psychotically cut himself self out of every single photo in the ma mansion. Can I speak? I don't think so. Um, it's smart, I'm not gonna lie, it's intelligent, um, taking yourself out of every photo so that nobody knows what you look like. It's, it's pretty smart. Or not that nobody knows what you look like, but they can't, like, broadcast, like, hey, this is what this guy looks like. Um, yeah, I'll give him that. Before fleeing the scene, he turned the thermostat down to delay the decaying of the bodies, turned on all the lights, and turned the house radio system volume all the way up on a religious station. Um, and although all of this happened on November 9th, the bodies weren't discovered until nearly a month later on December 7th. Uh, because the family usually kept to themselves for the most part, neighbors really didn't find it suspicious um, that they hadn't seen or heard from the family for quite a while. Uh, on top of that... John had sent letters to the children's schools and jobs, letting them know that they would be visiting their grandmother in North Carolina for a few weeks due to her being ill. Um, and Helen's mother was actually Ill, Ill and was planning on visiting them 
but she canceled last minute, and John claimed that if she had made the trip, she would have been the sixth victim, which, thankfully, she got sick. Um, neighbors only started paying attention to the mansion once they realized that the lights stayed on all throughout the day and night with no activity being seen through the windows. Um, when they started seeing light bulbs burn out one by one, they called the police, which I'm going to say it is chilling to think about. (laughs) Like imagine a house on your street right now that you never see people come out of like normally because they're just pretty recluse people, but imagine seeing the lights just one day appear on day and night um and then one day one light goes off and then the next day another lights off and then like another and another like that's so chilling i can't even imagine there's a i just i'm picturing this one house on our street that i literally never see movement from and i'm just imagining like i drive by one day and all the lights are on and then the next day one lights off and then the next day you get it you get it you get it okay when investigators arrived on the scene, they conducted an outside search of Bree's Knoll, but found nothing of suspicion, and others in the neighborhood believed that they really had gone on the vacation to visit the grandmother. Um, that was until the night of December 7th, when police were called to the house once again. Um, when they got there, they met Patricia's, which is the daughter, the, I think she was 16? Oh god, I can't remember, that's really bad of me. Um, they met Patricia's drama coach calling for her from the front door and he insisted that something was definitely wrong and ended up somehow convincing the officers to enter through an unlocked window leading into the basement. And thankfully he did because as soon as they walked inside, the smell of death hit them um, and they found the bodies in the ballroom. So... Where the Lists lived in Westfield, New Jersey, crimes like this did not happen. Um, this is the same place that the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped from, um, and that was like the last big crime that had ever happened in this town. Um, but this case caused a nationwide manhunt for John, with multiple leads that took them nowhere because all the photographs had been destroyed, so they didn't know what he looked like. Um... The family's car was found parked at the John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City, but police couldn't find any evidence that John had boarded a flight there, because he didn't. Uh, He just left the car there to make it look like he did. So once again, he's not dumb. He is pretty smart, and that's that's the sad part. Um, So John's mother, Alma's body, was flown to Frankenmuth? Frankenmuth? Guys, I'ma be real. I don't know how to say that. Um, Michigan, and given to the St. Lawrence Lutheran Cemetery, and Helen, I just forgot how to read the word Helen. Am I okay? Um, no, I'm not. Helen and her three children were buried at Fairview Cemetery, Cemetery? Oh my gosh. Guys, I need, like, electric currents in my brain. Helen and her three children were buried at Fairview Cemetery in Westfield. So Breeze Knoll, the mansion with a name, um, remained empty until it was destroyed by a fire in August of 1972, nine months after the murders. So although the fire was actually officially ruled as arson, it remains unsolved with no suspects and no idea of how it actually burned down. Um... Some say, just to, like, add to the spooky effect, um, 
that the the fire was a ghost fire set by angry spirits but who really knows you believe what you want um among 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 the rubble that remained after the destruction were the bits and pieces of the ballroom's stained glass skylight rumored to be a signed tiffany original which was worth at least 100,000 at the time um remember that little bit of information remember remember this they had something in their house that was worth a hundred thousand okay just just think just put that in your brain lock it in there um a new house sits on the lot today and i will be moving in um i don't care just kidding i would never live there in there i mean new jersey um i'm sure it's a great place but it's not a great place for me In 1971, as the FBI later discovered, John had traveled by train from New Jersey to Michigan and then to Colorado. Yeah, Colorado. Um, He settled down in Denver in early 1972 and took an accounting job as Robert Peter Clark. Um, Couldn't have chose a name that sounded faker. Um, My stepdad is going to listen to this and be like, dude, your grammar is so bad. Um... I'm sorry. I actually am not. He claimed that he got the name from one of his colleague's friends, even though the real Bob Clark, that was a colleague. Did I say colleague? I meant college. One of his college friends. But the real Bob Clark that he was talking about, um, that he went to college with, said that he didn't know John at all. So that's that's funny. Um, But while he was in Denver from 1979 to 1986, he was the comptroller at a paper box manufacturer outside of Denver, and he joined a Lutheran congregation and ran a carpool for shut-in church members. I'm not gonna lie and pretend I know what that means. Um, I don't. At one religious gathering, he met an army clerk named Dolores Miller and married her in 1985. She had no idea that he murdered his... murdered... Mm-hmm, that word. Um, she had no idea that he murdered his entire family, and she married him. But, yeah, and, and then in February of 1988, they moved to Midlothian, Virginia, where John, or Robert Clark, um, resumed work as an accountant. <laughs> you know, he's a murderer, but I guess he makes a damn good accountant. <laughs> in May of 1989... The 18-year-old Unsolved Crime was aired on America's Most Wanted, which is Adam Walsh's dad, the show that we, the show, the little boy that basically was the reason that Code Adam was made. That was from last episode. Um, But on the show, there was an age-progressed clay bust shown, um, and this bust was sculpted by forensic artist Frank Bender, which turned out to look identical to what John looked like at the time. Um, he sat down with a psychologist and like talked about uh, the way he would carry himself now after the past that he had. Um, and it was, it, I mean, it's super cool because like they got even down to the glasses that he was wearing were the identical glasses that they put on the bust. Um, but when I... When I do my Instagram post about this episode, I'll go ahead and add a photo of the bus next to, like, John when he was captured. And you guys are going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, yep, mm-hmm. Um, 
but the bus ended up resembling John so well that his old neighbors in Denver recognized him and called the authorities. Thank goodness. Um, I always knew Denver was a great place, you know? Um, but this led to John being arrested on June 1st, two weeks after the broadcast, at a Richmond accounting firm. His life literally revolves around accounting. Um, for months, John insisted that his name was Robert Clark, even after being extradited to Union County, New Jersey. But on February 16th of 1990, he couldn't lie anymore because his fingerprints from his military records and evidence found at the crime scene forced him to confess to his true identity. That, I mean, yeah, that'll do it. That'll definitely do it. So at trial, um, John claimed that his financial difficulties reached crisis levels in 1971 when he was laid off due to the closure of the Jersey City Bank that he worked at. Um, so instead of revealing to his family that he was unemployed and to avoid the humiliation that comes with being the man of the house and not having a job, John continued to leave the house in the mornings, dress like he was going to work, and would spend his days at the Westfield train station reading newspapers until it was time to come home. Um, so he literally would get up, get dressed for work, kiss his wife goodbye, send the kids off to school, and go sit at the train station all day long, um, reading newspapers to pretend that he had a job. Yeah. He was slowly pulling money from his mother's bank accounts to avoid default on his mortgage. 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 I hate the English language. Um, but as the year continued, the family's financial problems became harder and harder to hide. So, remember um, when I told you to think about the Tiffany skylight? Yeah. Just think about it. Um, John encouraged his children to get part-time jobs to teach them maturity and responsibility, but it was actually just to help keep the family financially stable. Um, yeah. Nah, I don't have words. Um, so instead of getting a job or telling his family that he was laid off, he killed them all. Yeah, because killing them is easier than telling your family that you were laid off from your job closing down. Seems totally justified. Um, a court-appointed psychiatrist testified that John suffered from severe obsessive-compulsive personality disorder and that he only saw two solutions to the situation that he was in. He could... I can't read. He could either accept welfare or kill his family, basically, um, and send their souls to heaven. So welfare was apparently the unacceptable option, I don't know if you just heard those dog tags, but that was Ellie the dog, the Aussie. Um, So, yeah, he could accept welfare, um, which was actually the unacceptable option, because it would expose his family to ridicule and violate his father's teachings regarding the care and protection of his family members. Um, And that right there is just why this is one of my favorite cases. Like, I can't accept welfare. My dad said that's wrong. So instead, I'll kill my family because my dad said that that's, that's okay. I don't know. That that literally that's why it's one of my favorite cases. Um on April 12th, 1990, John was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder even though he continuously denied responsibility for his actions. He claimed he felt that because of his mental state at the time, he was unaccountable for what happened and he asked all affected by this 
event for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. So the judge was unpersuaded by his pleas and said that he was without remorse and without honor. Um, And before reading his sentencing, the judge said, After 18 years, 5 months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patrick, Frederick, and John Jr. I said Patrick. Oh my god. Patricia. (laughs) That's not funny. Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John Jr. to rise from the grave. Guys, it's almost 9 o'clock. I'm an old lady. It's almost bedtime. And I really just read Patrick instead of Patricia. Okay, calm down. It's not that funny. It's not funny at all. He sentenced five terms of life imprisonment to be served consecutively, which was the max penalty at the time. So Homeboy was not getting out of prison. Um, And by this time, he was pretty old. So, of course, obviously, John filed an appeal on grounds that his judgment had been impaired by PTSD due due to his military service. And he also argued that the letter he left behind at the crime scene, which was used as a confession in the case, um, was confidential between him and his pastor, pastor, pastor. Therefore, it was inadmissible as evidence. Uh, yeah, that's not how that works, dude. Um, that's not how that works. Uh, the federal appeals, appeals court rejected both arguments, thankfully. And he was interviewed at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton by Connie Chung in 2002 where he expressed a degree of remorse for his crimes, claiming that he wishes he had never done what he did. Um, He regretted his action and prayed for forgiveness ever since he did it. Um, But when he was asked why he hadn't taken his own life, he said that suicide would have prevented him from getting to heaven. Buddy, do I have some news for you. You murdered your entire family. Um, On or on, at 82 years old, on March 21st, 2008, while in prison custody at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey, John died from complications of pneumonia. And I hope that he died not being able to breathe, because, yeah. When reporting his death, the New Jersey Star-Ledger referred to him as the Boogeyman of Westfield. Um, so if you ever hear, like, the Boogeyman of Westfield, they're talking about John. Um... Over the years, his crimes inspired a number of movies and documentaries, such as episode 16 on season 6 of Law & Order, the 1993 film Judgment Day, The John List Story, and the 1987 film The Stepfather and its remake in 2009, and the 1995 film The Usual Suspects. In 1972, John was suspected in the D.B. Cooper air piracy case, which is a really cool and interesting case, too. Um, I'm not going to get into it here because, you know, Google's a thing. But I just burped again. <laughs> um, he was suspected in this case because of the timing of his disappearance. Multiple, matched, multiple matches to the hijacker's descriptions and the reasoning that a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing else to lose. Um, another factor that made him a suspect was that the D.B. Cooper, um, person, that wasn't his actual name, that's just what they called him, um, he demanded 200000 which would have been enough to pay the mortgage on Breeze Knoll, um, but so would the skylight, so, I don't know. John was questioned by the FBI after his capture, but denied any involvement in the D.B. Cooper case, 
and while his name is still mentioned in the articles surrounding that case, no direct evidence implicates him, and the FBI had removed him as a suspect, so think what you will. Um, I don't know if we'll ever find the real D.B. Cooper, but we can hope. So, in 2008, well, yeah, we can hope, because nobody ever really thought that they'd find John List either, and they did, so. In 2008, John Walsh, the host of America's Most Wanted, donated the age-progressed bust to, or by Frank Bender, to the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C. Um, who wants to do a meetup and go there? Because I do. Um, the bust can now be seen at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And I don't know about you, but I want to go to the place called Pigeon Forge. Um, and I'm also pretty sure a movie just came out on this case in, like, the summer, like, last year, summer of 2020. But I have no idea, actually, so I don't know why I said anything. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the John List case, one of my many many favorite cases um it makes you angry it makes you question everything is your husband going to the train station and reading newspapers all day instead of going to his job i don't know you should ask him um yeah i am excited to listen to this episode back and see how many times i couldn't speak english um how many times you could hear me swallow how many times you could hear me run out of breath from speaking and how good the quality is and how many times you didn't hear me blow into the microphone okay listen watch i just blew into the microphone could you hear it no because i have two pop filters yeah i do um i think that's it i hope you have a really great day i hope this week wasn't that bad um I'm staring into the soulless eyes of one of the little, um, they're called amigurumis. They're like the stuffed animals that you crochet. Like there's origami out of paper and then there's amigurumi, which is yarn. Um, but I'm staring into its eyes as I speak and I'm feeling not human. Um, just remember to lock your doors and don't talk to creepy men. And have a really nice day. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you, Bailey. I love you so much.